Sometimes destroying things and rebuilding them is difficult. In the passage that we're looking at today, it's the only time that I know of in Jesus' ministry where he performs what you might call a destructive miracle. He destroys something. And this is a miracle that is kind of, it kind of rubs us the wrong way. Uh, some people have even looked at this passage and are like, like this, this couldn't be Jesus. Like This couldn't be like the meek and vile Jesus that we know. Like He couldn't be being this vindictive. Like He sees this poor fig tree and he's angry. He's like, may you never bear fruit again. I mean, it seems like he's being vindictive. Some people would go even so far as to say, maybe this shouldn't even be in the Bible because this doesn't represent Jesus. But when we look at this passage and we look at this fig tree, it's really not about the fig tree at all. The fig tree represents something. The fig tree represents Israel's religion and, and kind of what it has become. And Jesus is going to kind of demonstrate through this fig tree how he's going to have to destroy something and rebuild it again. It says in the text that there were leaves on this fig tree. There were leaves on this fig tree, and uh, this time, the time of the Passover, it probably would have been uh, somewhere between like March, April. And at this time, there wouldn't be fully formed figs. Uh, at this time, usually what happened was when the fig tree, when the leaves would start to open, then the fruit would start to form at the same time. And so Jesus isn't looking like for fully formed, beautiful figs at this point. He's just looking for anything. And, you know, you had to be really hungry to eat these green figs. Sometimes people would eat them, but it was generally, you know, if you were really hungry. So he's looking for figs to eat, and there's just nothing on this tree. And what's interesting about this tree is that it, it kind of demonstrates something. It, it's communicating something that's not accurate in that there's lots of leaves, like more leaves than you would expect from a fig tree at this point. And you would expect if there's all of these leaves, there would be a bountiful harvest beneath, but there's nothing. There's no fruit. And, and what this indicates is not only uh, that there's no fruit at this point, but there won't be any fruit for the entire year. It shows signs of life, but no fruit. And this is a picture of the temple and Israel's worship. We looked last week at the temple and how Jesus... Uh, cleansed the temple, how he drove out the money changers and those who were selling and, and, and buying. And we talked about kind of that setting of what it would have been like to go to the temple. It was kind of like, you know, the Bills Stadium. There was all kinds of stuff happening, people buying things, people selling things, sacrifices being made. It, it was a hub of activity. And I think this fig tree is a picture of that hub of activity. Like it seemed on the surface like it had a lot of life, like there's a lot of leaves, there's a lot of growth. But there's no fruit. Jesus says that it's a den of robbers. People aren't, hearts aren't being changed. And so Jesus is communicating uh, with this destruction of the fig tree, something important that he's going to essentially destroy Israel's religion. And literally this is going to happen in AD 70 when there's a Jewish revolt and the Romans are going to come in and actually demolish the physical temple. But Jesus is, is kind of talking more spiritually that he's going to have to undo what has been done because this temple complex is not doing the, the, you know, performing the purpose for which it was made. Jesus said it was made to be a house of prayer, and yet it has become a den of robbers. It, has, it seems like it has a lot of life, but there's no fruit within it. When we think about fig trees in the ancient world, a fig tree was the picture of a good life, of being secure. One scholar describes it as being settled. Uh, one example of, of kind of how people viewed a fig tree is, is in 1 
uh, Kings 4.25. It says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree in the days of Solomon. So it symbolized the good life being established. It took years to establish a healthy fig tree. And it would have been probably a jarring thought for people who were seeing this for the disciples to think that Jesus would just destroy this fig tree that had taken years to develop and showed so much promise, so much signs, so many signs of life, but it doesn't produce fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree as a sign that Israel's religion has become useless in a sense. It shows signs of life, but it isn't changing their hearts. And the disciples marvel at this. And, and I've, I've been thinking all week on this, like, why were the disciples so, marvel, you know, so amazed at this miracle? And, and I haven't really come up with a good answer. You know, because they had been with Jesus. They had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen him heal those who were sick. They'd seen him calm a storm. They'd seen him feed 5,000 people or more. They'd seen him do any, all of these miracles, and yet this fig tree, somehow they're, they're marveling at it. Maybe it's just because it was different. It wasn't something Jesus had done before. We don't really know. But they're marveling at this. They're amazed that Jesus does this. And Jesus says to them that if they have faith and do not doubt, they can say to a mountain to be thrown into the depths of the sea, and the mountain will move and be thrown into the depths of the sea. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when it talked about a mountain moving, it was symbolizing something that was impossible. And so in one sense, Jesus is saying, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do the impossible. But there's probably an even more specific reference that Jesus is referring to in this passage. He's probably referring to a prophecy to a man by the name of Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4. Zerubbabel was a man who we probably haven't heard a lot about, but he was someone who was actually in the line of Christ. He was in the line of David and in the line of Christ. And he had an important task during the post-exilic period, that is when uh, the period after Israel was conquered and the temple was destroyed. He was giving a, given a very important task, kind of similar to what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus is saying this temple is going to be destroyed, I'm going to be rebuilding it. And Zerubbabel, his job was to rebuild the temple. So he was going to be rebuilding the temple, and God had tasked him with this responsibility. But he has some obstacles, a number of obstacles. We're, we're not going to go into all of those obstacles. You can look in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah um, and just kind of look at those obstacles. We're not going to go into all those obstacles, but basically there was obstacles from within there are people who are kind of looking at the progress of what had happened in the temple and what he's doing, and they're saying, like, this doesn't compare to Solomon's temple. Like, you're trying to rebuild this temple, but this is nothing like what we remember the temple to be. Others from without were just trying to get him to stop building the temple for one reason or the, the other. They were, just, they were just trying to stop him, and so he's facing all of these obstacles it got so bad that there was about a 15-year period where the, the construction on the temple actually ceased. And so he's facing these mountains of obstacles. And into that context, in Zechariah 4, Zechariah, through the Spirit of God, says this. Not by might, nor by power, but, my, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring toward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. 
And so in the context of these great obstacles that Zerubbabel is facing in rebuilding the temple, God speaks to him and says, I'm going to demolish that mountain. I'm going to make that mountain into a plain. And so I think that Jesus is saying that same thing to the disciples, that when you're following after God and you face a mountain, God's going to move that mountain if you have faith. Jesus himself is going to, he's facing a mountain. The mountain of destroying and rebuilding the temple. John 2, 18 to 22, speaks of that mountain. It says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then says, said, it has, been t- it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, today as the fig tree is cursed, this is Tuesday of Holy Week, Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. Jesus himself is going to be cursed on a tree similar to the way that this fig tree is cursed. And unlike the fig tree that showed signs of life but produced no fruit, Jesus is going to show no signs of life, he's going to die And yet through his death and resurrection, he's going to give life to untold multitudes. Jesus is about to do through the cross and resurrection what the law, what the temple could never do. And he's going to become the temple. And he's going to do what the law and temple could never do in that he's going to change hearts. And so he's going to overthrow that mountain of the temple and he's going to overcome these obstacles. And so the question is, what does this mean for us? How does this apply to us today? I think that there's two applications for us today. And the first thing I think that we need to remember is that fruitfulness is more important than busyness. Fruitfulness is more important than busyness. That is, doing something is not as important as being changed by someone. Doing something is not as important as being changed by someone. Fruitfulness is more important than busyness. Ten years from now, there'll be three different groups of people. Uh, Of the people who attend I Hope Church or any church, there's going to be three different groups of people. Ten years from now, there'll be a group of people that some of us, maybe we won't even call ourselves followers of Christ anymore. You know, we won't attend church. We won't have a relationship with Christ. We may not spend time in God's Word anymore. And we'll be in that place where we just have kind of left the faith. Ten years from now, there'll be another group of us. Ten years from now, there'll be another group of us who still attend church, whether it's this church or another church. We still do spiritual things. We read the Bible. We pray. We're generally a good moral moral people. But we'll be the same people ten years from now that we are today. We'll be the exact same person. Like, our hearts won't change. Like, we'll be doing the same things. We'll be doing activities, but we'll be the exact same person. And then there's a third group of us that, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back on this day and we'll hardly even recognize who we were. Because God is going to do so many things in the next 10 years in our hearts that he's going to make us love him so much more. He's going to give us such increased faith and he's going to help us to love those around us that we're going to look back 10 years and we're going to be like, like, who was that person? Like, like. God has brought me so far. God has done so much in my heart. 
And the question is, like, what's the difference? Like, what causes some people to, you know, be in the same place, be doing the same things? And some people fall, fall off and say, I'm not even going to follow Jesus. Some people say, I'm going to still do the spiritual things and, and, you know, go to church and read my Bible but aren't changed. And then other people are transformed. Uh, how is it that sometimes people, and you've probably seen people like this, that people who have gone to church for decades and yet they're not very nice people to be around? Like, God hasn't changed their heart. Like, they're, this, they're almost the same person that, the, the, that they were the moment they entered into the doors of the church. Like, why are some people changed and some people aren't? I think actually Jesus gives us a really clear answer in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, he says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus gives us a key there. The key to transformation, it's abiding. Simply, the, the word abide means to remain. One Greek dictionary translates it this way, to wait instead of taking active measures. To wait instead of taking active measures. And, and, and in saying that, we're not, you know, I don't think Jesus, or I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't do things, that we should just, you know, kind of be spiritual beings. But this is the difference between the temple being like this hub of activity where there was always something going on, and yet they weren't changed. It's the difference between be, the temple being a hub of activity and the temple being a house of prayer. And I think the same thing is true for us. We can do all the spiritual things, and unless we're abiding in Christ, they're not going to change us. Doing spiritual things by themselves they're not going to transform us. Only Jesus can transform our hearts. And so we need to approach Christ with that mindset of acknowledging that he's the only one who can transform us. And he's the only one that can change our hearts. And so it's about a relationship with him. It's about remaining in him, staying close to him. And so as we cry out to him, as we recognize, God, my heart is messed up. God, I don't love people like I should. God, I don't love you as much as I should love you. We say, God, God, I need you to change me. I can't change my, my, myself. I mean, doing all the spiritual things, it's great. I mean, they can help us. But only if the Spirit of God is the one who's transforming us. And so fruitfulness is more important than busyness. And as believers, our number one goal in our lives should be to remain in Christ, to abide in him. To make sure we're in that pathway of grace. It doesn't matter how full our calendars are if we're not abiding in him. Asking him to be with us. Asking him to change us. Asking him to give us the strength that we need. And so fruitfulness is more important than busyness. But the second thing I think we learn in this passage is that God will remove uh, any obstacles in the, in, in the way of his plan for us. Now we look at this passage and, you know, Jesus says some really big things. 
You know, if we have faith and don't doubt, we can say to a mountain, move, and it will be thrown into the depths of the sea. And he goes on and he says, if you ask anything in faith, that you'll receive it. I mean, it seems like a blank check. And sometimes as believers, we have trouble with this because it's like, sometimes we pray for things. And, you know, sometimes it's clear, like, maybe we didn't have faith, and that's why we didn't receive it. But there's other times that maybe we do have faith and we're praying to God and praying to God and there's this mountain before us and yet God doesn't move the mountain. It's like, what's that? like I thought it said in this passage, if you have faith, the mountain will be moved. And sometimes maybe that causes us to question God, like why doesn't he move this mountain? Like I have faith, I believe in what he says and yet this mountain isn't moved. I think this passage gives us a couple different reasons why that might be the case. Number one, sometimes I think that to move a mountain, it requires more than just our faith. When Jesus says, when you ask anything or when you uh, don't doubt, the you is in the plural. We don't have a you in the plural. In the South, they do y'all. So he's saying, when y'all believe, when y'all don't doubt. And so he's talking in the plural, and sometimes for some things, for some mountains, in order for that mountain to be moved, all of God's people's faith are going to be activated. And as we look at our church and sometimes mountains that might be before us, God's not going to move a mountain based on my faith and Mike's faith. God's going to move mountains based upon all of us believing in God, all of us seeking his faith. And so sometimes God doesn't move a mountain because... In order for um, this mountain to be moved, it requires all of God's people's faith to be activated. So that's sometimes. Sometimes I think that God doesn't move a mountain because maybe it's the wrong mountain. Maybe it's the wrong mountain. Gary Thomas tells a story about that, that's helpful. He says, imagine that uh, you're told that everything that you ever wanted in life can be yours if you climb this one mountain. And, you know, the mountain is really high, and you go out and you buy all this specialized equipment to be able to scale this mountain. You train for years to be able to scale this mountain. You get a guide to get to the top of this mountain. And finally, the day comes, and you get there, and, you know, it takes you several days to get to the top. And you are all tuckered out, and you finally reach the top. And there's a guy there, and the guide says to you, I'm sorry, but you climbed the wrong mountain. Imagine how discouraging that would be. And sometimes I think the reason that God doesn't move the mountain before us is it's the wrong mountain. You know, maybe we're following our own path, our own plan. And for some of us, maybe that plan is like, I want God to give me a life of ease and comfort. And, and, you know, maybe it's like, okay, like my bank account isn't where I would like it to be. And if only he gave me what I need, you know, only if he gave me these things that I'd have like this life of ease and comfort. And sometimes God is like, no, I'm not going to move that mountain because that's not my goal for you. My goal is not ease and comfort. That's not my goal for your life. I, I mean, imagine how that would play out in an individual's life. Imagine if God did move that mountain. Imagine if a person, you know, is struggling and they're like, hey, 
God, I just need you to provide for me. And God just provides in an incredible way so much that there's, you know, just an overflow of financial resources. And they do all the fun things. You know, they go on vacation and they buy boats and they buy townhouses and they buy everything that you could ever imagine. And then they live their life and then they go down to Florida and play golf every single day. And then they die. And they've wasted their lives. And what would God be doing if he moved that mountain? He would be helping someone waste their life. And so sometimes we're facing this mountain. We're like, God, please move this mountain. And God's like, no, I'm not going to move it because that's not the path I have for you. But God has a plan for each and every one of us. God has a path for us. And when we're following God's plan for our life, we're inevitably going to be coming up against mountains. We see it throughout the scriptures. Everyone who followed God, God eventually brought them to a mountain. Part of it's just the world that we live in, and part of it's because God wants us to trust him. It's like Abraham. God says, you're going to become a great nation. But he had this mountain in front of him. He doesn't have any children. He can't have children. His wife is past child-rearing age. It's a mountain before him. Think about the Israelites. They're in slavery. There's a mountain. They can't get out of slavery. Finally, uh, Pharaoh lets them go, and they're going out into the wilderness, and God leads them to the Red Sea, a place where they're hemmed in. They can't get out. The Egyptians are following after them, and it's like, what are we going to do now? Like, we should have just stayed in Egypt. They're going to come out and destroy us. Of course, God parted the Red Sea. God called David to be a king, and yet there's this giant, Goliath, who's standing in front of him. There's this King Saul, who's this megalomaniac who's trying to kill him. It's a mountain before him. Joshua, he's facing the Canaanites. The, the Canaanites were people who were, you know, terrifying. And God's saying, be strong, be courageous. I'm going to help you. I'm going to move this mountain. See, this with Gideon. Gideon uh, was facing the Midianites. The Midianites, he was so terrified that he was hiding in a wine vat. God says, I'm, I'm going to move this mountain. We see it with Jesus. He's facing a temple that isn't changing people's hearts. He's facing a cross. He's facing death. And yet God moves mountains. God moves mountains The good news is when we face a mountain, a mountain is really an opportunity for God to work. We, we see it as a huge mountain. We see it as something we can't climb over. But a mountain is an opportunity for God to prove himself faithful. Because when there's a mountain before us and it's something we can't handle on our own, and then God comes through and he either, he either does one of two things. Number one, he moves that mountain and we just walk through. Or sometimes he's... He's like, okay, there's this mountain in front of you. Now, I'm not going to move it, but I'm going to give you the strength to go over it. It's not going to be easy, but when you fall down, I'm going to catch you. And when you feel like giving up, I'm going to give you the strength that you need to keep going. So God is the mountain mover, and we don't need to doubt his faithfulness. We don't need to doubt his plan for us. He knows what he's doing, and he'll get all the praise and glory as a church, you know, we've been praying for some time about what God would have us do with this f facility if he would lead us to another facility. 
And um, there's mountains ahead of us for that. You know, first of all, you know, I feel like we have this footprint in this community, and I wouldn't want to leave this community to go somewhere, you know, even a few miles away. It's like, so where would we go? Like, where would the facility be? And then second, like, how would we afford it? Where would the finances come from? And so, so there's mountains before us. And, you know, it's either going to be one of two things. If we're following after God, he's going to be like, okay, like another place, that mountain, that's not the path I have for you. Maybe the mountain I want you to deal with is just doing ministry here and working here and figuring out how to do ministry better here. Or if it is God's plan for us, maybe he will move that mountain out of the way so that we can walk forward. And I'm grateful for your prayers in this as, as we walk forward in this. But in our personal lives, we all have mountains. And again, when we face those mountains in our life, they're just an opportunity for God to show up. We just need to believe in him. We need to just believe that he is the mountain mover. When we think about the idea of moving mountains, there actually was a mountain that moved one time. And when I say a mountain moved, it wasn't, you know, like a controlled demolition or anything like that. It wasn't building a, a road through a mountain wasn't a mountain that moved a few feet. It's a mountain in Wyoming called Heart Mountain that scientists say moved about 60 miles from here to Rochester, basically. This, you know, and scientists say that this, it moved about 60 miles, and scientists have been trying to come up with explanations for how this happened for, for years. And, you know, and you know, how this happened, it's, it's not really clear. But you think about this, and, you know, you've probably never heard of a mountain moving before. It's probably never been something that crossed your mind. You probably never thought of it as possible. And yet God can move mountains. And maybe even that, the fact that he moved that mountain is a reminder that he can. He can move mountains. And so when we get before that mountain, you know, maybe we don't see a way through. We don't see any way out. We don't see any option that is good. And yet when we're following him, he's going to remove those obstacles or he's going to help us go over them because he's a faithful God. He's not going to lead us to a place where we're before this mountain and be like, okay, I'm stuck, nowhere to go, time to give up. No, if it's God's plan, he's going to either move that mountain or he's going to help us get over it. And so as believers in Jesus, we need to just simply walk forward in faith to trust him, to believe that he is the God who does the impossible. And when we trust him, he can move those mountains. Let's pray. Lord, we thankful for, thank you for your great faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who came to the earth and destroyed the temple and rebuilt it again. That you are the true temple. That you are the one who can truly change our hearts when we abide in you. Lord, I pray that for each of us here, that each and every one of us would abide in your love. That our lives would not be marked by frantic activity, but by faithful service and a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that 10 years from now, everyone in this room would look back and just be amazed at the way that you've transformed our hearts. The way that you've made us love you more, made us love your people more. Lord, when we face mountains in our life, help us not to fear, 
Help us not to be driven to despair, but help us to walk forward in obedience, knowing that you're the God that moves mountains. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.